from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. The first incident was reported on the night of July 19th. According to the police, about eight accused had picked up a fight with 18-year-old Masood over a trivial issue. He worked as a laborer. He was assaulted with bare hands and the accused reportedly smashed a bottle on his head. This assault was over an incident that took place few days ago. Masood died on July 21. Once he was declared dead, people gathered in large number at the hospital seeking justice. Then that, uh, the next incident that shook the district was the murder of BJP youth wing activist Praveen Nektaru on July 26th. 32-year-old Praveen Nektaru was a member of the Dakshin Kannada District BJP Yuva Mocha Committee and he was hacked to death in front of his broiler shop in Bellare by three bike bone miscreants when he was heading home. The next day, people gathered in large numbers to participate in the funeral procession that was carried out from Putturu to Nektaru where he was cremated. And by about 1 p.m. when the funeral procession reached uh, Bellare, um, the crowds had actually turned violent and expressed their anger against the government. They tried to topple the car of BJP state president Nalin Kumar Katil, who also represents Dakshin Kannada district. Public shouted slogans against the government and said that they were feeling insecure as Hindu activists and leaders at the grassroots were being killed. <laughs> With regard to investigation of this case, six people have been arrested so far and uh, all the arrested are accused of hatching the conspiracy. Two days later, that is on July 28th, 23-year-old Mohammed Fazil was hacked to death in Suratkal. The Mango City Police have arrested a total of seven persons in connection with the case. Fazil worked as a part-time cleaner in an HPCL uh, bullet tanker. Of the arrest, uh, six accused were directly involved in the case. Those are the three murders in 10 days in the Dakshina Kannada district of Karnataka that made national headlines. Deepti Sanjeev, who you just heard, reports on the region for the Times of India and says that things are largely calm now. Despite that, no one's breathing easy given the communal tensions in the region and the fact that we're about a year away from elections in the state. In today's episode, we're speaking with Deepti Sanjeev about these three killings and their fallout. We're also speaking with author and journalist Shugata Srinivasaraju to understand why it prompted protests among the BJP cadre and also a strong reaction from Chief Minister Basavaraj Bomai. Deepti says that the investigations into the three cases have revealed that while the first murder of Masood on the 19th of July was not planned, the second and third murders were carefully planned and targets were picked to spark tensions. She also explains the history of violence in the region and why it usually peaks around a year before state elections. See, though senior officials have not come on record on this, 
they have been maintaining that it's too premature to come to any conclusion. But our sources have told us that the accused in Mohammed Fazil case wanted to kill someone before Pravin's, Pravin Nettaru's remission took place. Our understanding after discussion with senior police officials is that both Praveen and Fazil were random and easy targets. Both the victims were popular uh, in the social circles and the places they live. When Praveen was a part of a political party, Fazil used to engage himself in various social causes, including blood donation drives. Fazil was one of the seven targets that the accused had identified and in case of Praveen too, uh, the target was probably random with no personal rivalry, but with a motive to create fear. And uh, in terms of the fallout of these murders, you spoke about this violence that erupted during the cremation of Praveen Netaru. But no. what was the effect on the region after these murders? Could you talk about what the fallout was? It is sad that, you know, whenever such incidents happen or uh, there is a dent on the image of Dakshin Kannada district, which is otherwise considered as an education hub. Soon after Fazil's murder, for instance, the deputy commissioner directed all urban bodies and gram panchayats to order closure of all shops and business establishments between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. with exemptions to medical stores and other essential services. Mm. These restrictions were lifted only yesterday. That's on August 8th. And, and in terms of maintaining the peace itself, how has that been achieved apart from these restrictions? Were there any like community meetings? The pattern that we have been seeing here, generally after an incident, a peace committee meeting is called where leaders from both the communities come there, they discuss problems and they try to find solutions in the presence of elected representatives and the administration. But this time what happened, the elected representatives were not there. That uh, administration clarified that this is uh, a series of peace meetings will be planned. What happened in the first peace committee meeting is that prominent Muslim community leaders, including representatives from the Muslim Central Committee, which is a very important body, they distanced themselves from the meeting because previously chief minister was in uh, yeah, the chief minister was in the district and he visited the house of only Praveen Nettaru and not Masu. So a lot of them were unhappy with this development because the chief minister is the chief minister for the state and not for any particular community. We saw these protests after Praveen's death. Um, mm. You know, what explains the protests in this mm. region, especially given the BJP's influence in the region? This is probably for the first time in the history of the district or in the state that the BJP and its leaders faced wrath from its workers uh, following the death of Praveen Nektaru. Uh, Dakshin Kannada district is often termed as an Hindutva factory. Uh, more than the party, it was a large embarrassment for the party state president Nalin Kumar Katil as the incident took place in his home constituency. A senior Bajrangdal leader told me that since 2006, three BJP workers who were killed. In addition to Bajrangdal workers, one RSS member and at least five Hindu workers were murdered in the district. Many of them were victims of revenge murders. The Hindu activists feel that when the Congress was in power, Hindus were killed uh, and it is continuing to happen even now. 
during elections the bjp promised to solve the problems of the workers and assured that no hindus would probably be killed henceforth but it did not happen one of the bjp workers even went on to say that we voted for hindutva more than development and for those of us who are less aware could you explain this sort of communal sensitivity of this region and uh, the sort of revenge killings that you spoke of See, generally what we have seen is whenever it's election time this revenge killing or anything an attempt to polarize the district uh you know has been happening in the recent years yeah revenge killings have been there for every murder that has taken place from if a person from one particular faith has been killed uh say in a span of one week or so the there has been retaliation so this has been happening if you go to see first was masood's killing following that it was uh, uh, pravin mettaru and accused reportedly have connection with an organization there with an similarly for fazil murder case to the case has been detected to a large has been solved to a large extent these accused to just wanted to kill somebody on uh, surface if you go to see for every person who has been killed during this election time or a year before the election there has been a revenge murder as deepthi said it was very unusual to see the protest by bjp cadre against the party's leaders but author and ty plus columnist shugata shrinivasa raju says he wasn't surprised at all He explains how Dakshina Kannada has been long developed as what is termed a Hindutva laboratory. He also explains why he thinks Chief Minister Basavaraj Bommai is struggling to handle such incidents and why all political parties are guilty of letting communal tensions flare up in the region. I was not really surprised Arun with the kind of protests there because Dakshina Kannada district is a very peculiar kind of spot in karnataka it is not like the rest of the districts it has always had uh, uh, these kind of communal flagrations and uh, it continues to be so so anything that happens in dakshina kannada does not surprise anybody who lives in karnataka and you should know karnataka uh, is culturally a very diverse state in the sense the south of karnataka is entirely different hyderabad karnataka region is very different the mumbai karnataka region is very different and the coast is very different so there are actually three or four states within a state this is one corner of the state i think that we we need to get that right uh, right at the beginning because uh, you know we tend to confuse dakshina kannada district with the rest of karnataka what surprised me was in that protest was that it looked like a kind of entitlement you know claiming entitlement it was bjp workers you are morcha workers who are sort of telling the government that you know it's your duty to protect us we do what we want i mean it's not necessary that we follow the law because you know we are a larger ideological call so it's it's your duty to shield us from the law you know that seemed to be the message and that was a very disturbing message and if you notice the kind of responses that came after that nobody including the chief minister did not tell them that what you are doing is wrong and this is a law and order issue we will sort it out 
the, the kind of reception and the kind of uh, uh, the, the atmosphere that was created uh, post the death of, unfortunate death of that uh, BJP worker was that it's as if a soldier has died at the border. So here you've imagined a certain enemy, you're fighting against it, uh, that enemy and you're claiming a certain kind of entitlement and martyrdom. So that is what was a bit disturbing. Otherwise, you know, I mean, uh, those things do happen. And uh, and those things have, Karnataka has been witness to that for a very long time. It's not a new trend. You said that it's not unusual to have these kind of communal uh, events yeah. in Dakshin Kannada region. Um, for one, could you elaborate on that? As a journalist, you know, I mean, uh, who's been in the field for close to 27, 28 years now. You know, as early as 2008-9, I did a cover story for a national magazine where I uh, spoke about the Talibanization of Karnataka. And I spoke specifically about Dakshina Kannada district. What later got mainstreamed in the national space, like it could be something like the Lao Jihad or the lynching of Muslims, people who are, you know, I mean, transporting uh, cattle, you know, I mean, several things like that. The communal rhetoric that has got normalized now across India was being experimented uh, very early, early 2000 uh, uh, in, in Dakshina Kannada. Some people even called it the Hindutva Laboratory. And, and uh, they had chosen a very interesting uh, place because, you know, Mangalore uh, is a kind of a confluence of several cultures, several identities, uh, and uh, uh, several linguistic and religious identities. So, so it was a very interesting kind of a thing as to how they were uh, trying to create uh, a kind of frenzy there and uh, experimenting and see if it works and then taking it across uh, to other places. There is a very detailed chronicling of how these things happen. Uh, and uh, there are books that have been published in Canada which speak about uh, how these things were happening. But the problem is that... Uh, the, uh, a, a party like the Congress is completely is completely absent there or has, has looked away. Whoever was a big leader in that state just moved to Delhi and forgot about the state. None of them, you know, been really bothered to go there and correct these narratives, but they just sort of allowed the BJP to take over the entire course. Uh, and how do you view this current sort of flare-up? The complication this time is, is there is a factional war also happening inside the BJP. And there is a chief minister who does not have the mandate or the moral authority. And he is someone who is a complete outsider to the system in Karnataka. In the sense, he was not, not part of the BJP before 2008. So he is not, a, not someone who is the tallest of BJP leaders. So there is there is a lot of unhappiness that he was made the chief minister. He was never seen or taken as a serious player. He was expected to keep the chair warm for somebody more ideologically entrenched. But the circumstances have worked the other way and uh, they have not been able to replace him. So there was this constant thing that he will be replaced, he will be replaced. But, but that rhetoric or that kind of a rumor or whatever news is spread by the other faction constantly. In fact, one of the deaths took place when the chief minister was actually, uh, you know, I mean, touring Dakshina Kannada, trying to console the family of this boy who had died, you know, Praveen Netharu. 
I mean, a, a, a death happened uh, when he was right there. And he was the home minister before this, right? He should have been aware as to how things operate, but he has looked the other way because there's no other choice for him. He feels guilty that he's not ideologically as entrenched as, as others in the party. And he's trying to make up for it by allowing fringe elements to take over. And then his very first, very early reaction as a chief minister was to say that every reaction will, every action will have a reaction. So thereby legitimizing moral policing, vigilante uh, crowds and all that. So he is... He has been, you know, in my assessment, he has been one of the worst chief ministers that Karnataka has seen because Edurapa never functioned this way. Edurapa had his problems, had his share of problems, but Edurapa also had the legitimacy of uh, an election. I mean, he had, he had sort of won an election, he had led the party, and he had built the party, and Edurapa very intelligently used Hindutva as an air cover, but worked the caste saffron uh, quite a bit in Karnataka because Karnataka caste plays a very, very important role. And we need to say that people who die in Dakshin Kannada, all the Hindu boys who die, they are all OBC boys. It's not the upper caste which, uh, uh, you know, I mean, attains quote unquote martyrdom there. So that's something to ponder about, you know, I mean, how and who is the grassroots uh, workers for the cause of you know, Hindutva? And who is the actual foot soldier for the Hindutva is an OBC person. Uh, they have been radicalized in that place. And you see uh, that is that happening. And, and, and this conflagration that you saw recently is also because they are a sizable number uh, in terms of population. So if a boy from that community dies, uh, I mean, there is, there is crowd on these, there's naturally crowd on the streets. These are made out to be political murders. They are not political murders. Whenever these killings have happened, the police have always presented a different case. The police have always attributed a completely different reason, but nobody takes cognizance of it and nobody sort of plays it up because it's convenient for everybody to go with a certain kind of narrative and not you know, uh, amplify the police version. In fact, I can tell you about another recent killing where you know, I mean, this whole contradiction got exposed is a, a certain killing, uh, I mean, a Hindu boy was killed in Bangalore and he was, a, I think, a food delivery boy. So instantly it was made out that this Hindu boy was killed because he did not speak Urdu. The home minister of the state, of all people, endorsed that without any kind of inquiry. And the police commissioner the next day had to counter it and then they all, all, all had to sort of, you know, trace their steps back. So this is one case where they had to trace their steps back, but in Dakshina Kannada, it's probably never happened. It, is, it serves a certain interest to give it a larger spin and make it look like a political murder or an ideological murder. That's the sad part. Rest of Karnataka is completely uh, taking all of this into cognizance. And, and, and I don't think the BJP is particularly uh, popular at this point with regard to this area, Dakshin Kannada, you spoke of the sort of history of it. Could you speak a bit about what makes it such a volatile area? One is the RSS has been very active there. The, the VHP and the Bajrangdal has been very active there. And then I already told you that it's a place where it's a confluence of cultures and identities. It sort of you know lends itself to such kind of provocation. And uh, there, is, there is also a very strong... Uh, 
uh, you know, presence of the OBC community, one or two communities, which are very, very powerful and electorally very, very useful. They did try everywhere. But, you know, this was the most uh, conducive of places for them to carry out their experiments. When an when a entire nation is polarized, you know, I mean, and now we understand that there is a certain process that, uh, that we go through. But then Dakshin Kannada was the first, that's it. It was actually, it's a very cosmopolitan place to say our own because, you know, the Christian missionaries have done a great job. The Muslim philanthropists have done a great job. The Pais of Manipal have done a great job. And, you know, I mean, uh, incidentally, uh, all the uh, headquarters of public sector banks like Syndicate Bank or Corporation Bank or Karnataka Bank or uh, Canada Bank, all of them were started and were in uh, that place. So it was such a progressive place. Any politician and any government worth its salt should have exploited the entrepreneurial abilities of that area. And such a syncretic uh, culture that it has. Even if you look at the OBCs and the Bhutas and Bhutaradhana and the Thuruvas and all that, I mean, there is such a wonderful syncretic environment there. It has been allowed to rot. And that is because of the apathy of politicians across party lines. Chief Minister Bomai's kind of his first reaction to this whole thing was to say that he could bring a yogi model of governance to the state if it was required. If Karnataka is the laboratory of these ideas, you know, how is a UP type scheme being viewed in Karnataka? Somebody should have asked Bhumai to elaborate what he means by the yogi model. So he has committed, according to me, a huge blunder by saying that because he is A, delegitimized the yogi model or if there is a yogi model by implication, meaning that that's the government of encounters, that's the government of bulldozers, that's the government of lynchings and we will do all of that here. So he is not actually paying a compliment to Mr. Adityanath's government in Uttar Pradesh. At around 2013-14, when, when, when Modi was coming to power, there was this whole talk about the Gujarat model. So is Mr. Bombay trying to say Adityanath is better than... That was the two models that we have discussed, right? So is he trying to say that Adityanath model is better than the Modi model? So is if does the Modi model uh, represent development and Yogi model represent something else? A law and order model. So if he is trying to bring bulldozers or uh, lynchings and uh, you know encounters or uh, marginalization of the minorities... Uh, I mean, further polarization, all of that. Then, you know, and it's, it's a very, uh, I mean, it's Karnataka is not Uttar Pradesh, right? I mean, he's, he's uh, I think, uh, completely uh, lost for words and was trying to appease uh, the RSS and the Sangh Parivar and the BJP and his better brethren in the BJP. So he'll probably use that thing to appease. But, but by doing that, I think he has rubbed Mr. Modi on the wrong side. So, do you think Karnataka could go down that road where it embraces greater polarization and, say, this sort of use of bulldozers and things that have now come to define certain governments? I don't think so, Arun, because as I told you right at the beginning, there are 30-31 districts. And this is a problem of two or three districts. And of course, they are, they will be very happy to spread it across everywhere. But, you know, I mean, the... the the savior is the demographics of the state and uh, the, the different identity conflicts uh, that exist in the state. So, uh, so it may not be uh, very easy. 
But you know, I mean, all of us have thought that a lot of things are not easy in this country and they've become easy. So we also have to be cautious when we say that. But I mean, Karnataka and the sensibilities and the uh, cultural capital that uh, people have here is entirely different from the North. So I mean, I would take guard behind that. So I don't think it's a very easy thing to do. And Bombay certainly is not the person to do it because Bombay is, as, as I told you, has no legitimacy of any kind. So I don't think it's, it's uh, at least it will happen around, I mean, under him. You also spoke of Bomai bending to the hardline elements more to kind of hold on to power in some ways. Do you expect him to continue doing that? And can that sort of politics work to take the BJP to power again? Or do you see him moving out because he would potentially be moved out before the next election, right? See, I mean, the next elections is uh, less than a year away. So, you know, I mean, there are too many claimants to the seat. And there are there is also not a conducive environment for anybody else to take over. Their career may sort of end uh, like it happened in Punjab or uh, elsewhere recently where a chief minister was changed and that new person sort of lost all these seats. People may want uh, Bombay to carry the cross. Uh, because, you know, I mean, he has also plummeted the state in a certain way. If you look at the hijab controversy, or I mean, even the anti-conversion bill, I don't think there was pressure on him. He was trying to appease the, uh, the, the right-wing elements in his party, trying to prove more loyal than the king. There is a huge dilemma there. Who will take over? And, and is it, is it uh, prudent to take over now? Or, is, uh, or should you sort of have this helicopter uh, landing where Mr. Modi sort of takes over the narrative and builds a completely different kind of thing. So I'm not very sure that they have an alternate thing. And also the complication is Mr. Boma is a Ligayat. Given the sensitivities of caste in Karnataka, uh, he was made the chief minister only because uh, he could also take care of that element and also would be pliable. And he has been pliable. And he has sort of played their game uh, much more than any Ali self-respecting chief minister would have done. Because if you look at the tenures of Sadanand Gowda or a Jagdish Shatter, relatively they were far better than the Bombay uh, thing. Here, I don't think uh, changing him is a solution or an easy option. They always play the long-term game. I don't think they play the short-term game. So the BJP, you know, one should credit them for playing long-term. There was a suggestion at one point of time that there should be a president's rule. So that for this, for the, for the last six months, you know, there is a proper government and people forget and they, they go, then they, they, there is no anti-incumbency. I, I don't know how they will handle it because this is the only government in the South. There is no chance of any government coming up anywhere in the South in the near future. So they may be cautious in their adventure. They may be caught between the two. So, but they will plan long term and the person who will come after Bumai or uh, if... Uh, uh, they come to power or if they are in the opposition, will be a proper person who will be groomed. And here, the other problem in Karnataka was the longest-serving organizing secretary of the BJP, who is now the national organizing secretary of the BJP, and traditionally that role is given to a person from the RSS, B.L. Santosh. See, B.L. Santosh, for the longest period, himself became ambitious about becoming the chief minister. So he did not groom anybody. His role was to ensure that a Yadurapa does not make a mistake or somebody else, the party sort of follows a certain ideological path. He forgot all of that 
and he became himself ambitious and he's a brahmin and he thought he could become a ramkrishna hegde who who sort of you know took over at a time when he had no uh, mandate or whatever from uh, from some from a devagauda so he thought he could become like that because his model was mr modi again and in mr modi as a organizing secretary of the bjp in delhi had been sent to gujarat as chief minister so there he was playing that game he was consumed by his own game and he did not uh, ensure that the party took a certain shape or, or, or had a I mean, had a certain kind of discipline so i think he is also to blame to a large extent the whole game of making dakshina kannada a case and amplifying it using media tools is a game it's it's, it's trying to amplification for fear is the game there so you you show this and you say this can happen everywhere else or this is already happening elsewhere so that's also a trap that we sometimes fall into if we don't sort of uh, look at messaging properly and that's been the model of polarization everywhere it happens in a small way but you build narratives and imagine a lot of things around it and then make it look big Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunay Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TOI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at toipodcast@timesinternet.in.